the culture wants to tell us, no, you're enough, you do you, live your truth, all that kind of stuff. And the Bible is saying something radically different. It's saying there is a God. He is seated in the heavens, enthroned between the cherubim. And because he is your origin, you're obligated to obey him. You're obligated to worship him. The, the current emphasis problem in the church is a low view of God. We only want God near. Uh, we want the we want Abba Daddy God. We, we are not sure what to do with the God who thunders from on high. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Jen Wilkin. Jen is a speaker, writer, and a teacher of women's Bible studies. She's organized and led studies for women in home, church, and parachurch contexts for nearly 20 years. She's also the author of a number of books, including None Like Him, 10 Ways God is Different from Us, and Why That's a Good Thing with Crossway. Today, Jen and I discuss our God-given limits as created beings. She reflects on why the common refrain that we should look inside of ourselves for meaning and fulfillment is so misguided, how our personal stories, especially those related to our family histories, can impact our view of God, and why embracing our limits in the presence of a limitless God is the only path to true inward peace. Let's get started. Well, Jen Wilkin, thank you so much for joining us on the Crossway Podcast today. Thanks for having me on. So I want to start our conversation today where you end your book uh, with a really interesting line. You write, our primary problem as Christian women is not that we lack self-worth, not that we lack a sense of significance. It's that we lack awe. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, there's a prevalent style uh, and content of teaching for women in particular that uh, falls along the lines of, oh my gosh, you know what women most need? They need uh, to understand identity. In fact, it's probably the most common topic. Nope, it hands down is the most common topic that I'm asked (laughs) to speak on when I'm invited to speak at women's events. Um, We are consumed with asking the question, who am I? And um, it's not a bad question. It's actually a really important question to ask. But as believers, we understand that arriving at the answer to that question comes through a different path than it does for um, the unbeliever. So the unbeliever um, can spend their whole life trying to understand themselves in reference to the world around them or to other people. But for the believer, we understand ourselves in reference to God. Uh, and, and, and so when you look at a lot of the typical resources that are being created for women today or the messages that are being given to them, although it's not unique just to women, it's in our worship music now and a lot of places. Yeah, so you don't, um, you don't think this is just a, a female-centered problem? I don't. I would say that probably 10, 15 years ago it was more uh, located in, in women's circles, but now, and some of it has to do with like there's always a new personality test coming out that everybody's really interested in. I think the personality test that will not be named is the one we're all thinking about right now, you know, there's nine of them. Um, and, and we love to talk about ourselves. And um, it is good to explore who we are. But again, as believers, we understand that the knowledge of self is always hand in hand with the knowledge of God, um, and that we can't arrive at a true understanding of who we are apart from an understanding of who God is. And so um, I'm really looking to correct an emphasis on the wrong syllable problem. Um, we should spend um, more time, in fact, I would argue most of our time, um, coming to the scriptures and asking, who is God? And then understanding who the scriptures say that we are in light of who he is. Why is it that that's the lens, the lens of self-worth and identity? Why is that the dominant way that Christian women and men, uh, increasingly so, tend to think about 
themselves and think about their relationship with God. Is that a new phenomenon in your mind, or is that something as old as mud? I can't imagine it's a new phenomenon. What we all want to believe is that we're enough. Uh, And um, what the gospel tells us is that apart from Christ, we're not enough. And, uh, and in fact, even once we become believers, uh, the only way that we are, our enoughness is only rooted in the finished work of Christ. Um, but when we have that sense of, oh, maybe everyone's going to figure out that I'm a fraud, or uh, maybe uh, everyone is going to find out that I'm not everything that I put myself out there to be, um, we're right. We're, we're not enough. We can't do everything that we should do to please the Lord. Uh, by the power of the Spirit, we can grow in our ability to do so as believers. But um, the culture wants to tell us, no, you're enough. You're good. You know, you do you. Live your truth. All that kind of stuff. And the Bible is saying something radically different. It's saying there is a God. He is seated in the heavens and thrown between the cherubim. And because he is your origin, you are um, obligated to him. You're obligated to obey him. You're obligated to worship him. Uh, Now, for the believer, it it moves from obligation to joy because we recognize the truth of it. But um, to the unbeliever, it's like, why would I worship something outside of myself? And self-worship and self-loathing, ironically, are always holding hands with one another. Um, Both of them involve self-focus. And so uh, women women, uh, spend a lot of time with self-loathing. You can tell from just the way that uh, goods and services are marketed to us. And so messages that they are enough are very appealing to them. And it's, uh, it's important as believers for us to come to the scriptures and say, wait a minute, if I am an image bearer of the God who sits enthroned between the cherubim, that's a different way of understanding my enoughness, so to speak, than, than what the world is trying to tell me. Is that something that you personally have struggled with or with maybe women close to you in your own family or your own orbit? Is that something that you personally resonate with? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think probably in my case, um, I lean more toward um, pride than self-loathing. And so uh, there, we all have things that we, we hate about ourselves. But I would say my my tendency is to move toward overconfidence or pride instead of to the self-loathing piece. Um, And so I'm fighting for balance just like everyone else. I need to know that the Lord is actually running the show and not me. Um, others, uh, and a lot of this really depends on, you know, your history of relationships with your parents, with your family, with, um, with your spouse that can drive the way that you perceive yourself in relation to everything, which is why we so desperately need a reference point that transcends those. We need that, um, that transcendent peace. We need the Lord. Um, but for women, I think often, um, it is this other thing. It is, I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not fill-in-the-blank enough. I'm not a good enough mother. I'm not this. I'm not that. And um, and those are, you know, you see depression and anxiety rates are much higher among women than they are among men. Uh, I think we could discuss a lot of cultural and even biological reasons that that's probably the case for women. And so um, I, I think I'm probably not coming at this from the normative space that women do, but as someone who ministers to women weekly, I'm sensitive to it. And as someone who has daughters and a mother and a mother-in-law, you know, I'm I'm always around women and um, we deserve a more glorious vision. Would you say this is uh, a or the root 
challenge facing Christian women today? Uh, would you put it in that kind of language? Well, I think it's rooted in, you know, my favorite topic, Bible illiteracy. I think that when we withhold the, the actual Bible from women and instead give them books about the Bible that are driving messages, um, then they they aren't ever even given an opportunity to consider to consider this this transcendent God. Um, so I, I think it's been a problem that's been around as long as there have been humans, but it looks a particular way at this particular time. So yeah, you seem to be hitting on something similar uh, when you talk about your, or the verse that's impacted your life the most, uh, which was Psalm 111.10. Um, can you recite that verse yeah. from memory and then explain uh, why that verse has had such a big impact on you? Yeah, it, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I, um, I remember being in my early 20s and thinking, man, I want to live a life of wisdom and, and wondering, but what does that mean? And, and where does one start with that? And um, to come across this verse just one day reading, you know, I, was, I was doing like one of those uh, go through the Bible in a year things right. where you bounce from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the Psalms. McShane, and I, something like yeah, that. Yeah, and I hit this in the Psalms and I was like, well, that is unexpected. <laughs> I would have thought that the adoration of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom, that the love of the Lord, that the joy of the Lord, you know, fill in the blank with any um, coffee cup idea that you want. You're not going to see the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom on a, a like a, na- a towel or a, a right. poster or something like that. Well, not only that, but how often do we even talk about the fear of the Lord anywhere um we we have our favorite things we like to talk about about the lord and they're usually the snuggly things and so i think this gets back to kind of what you were saying earlier you were asking is this a thing that's unique to women in this time period um and again i think it's just the the current emphasis problem in the church is a low view of god we only want God near. Uh, we want the we want Abba Daddy God. We we are not sure what to do with the God who thunders from on high, and so coming across this verse, um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's like, gosh, if I want to make a beginning at wisdom, it has to begin with this. And I would I remember sharing this insight, uh, teaching you know in these in rooms of women, and and women would come up to me and say, no no no, hey, perfect love drives out fear, Jen. Like. Perfect love drives out fear. We don't have to be afraid anymore because, you know, we're children of God. And so perfect love drives out fear. It's like, well, you can't just get rid of, because it's not just Psalm 111.10. I mean, it's in the Old Testament, lots of places, and actually it's in the New Testament also. So how how would you respond to that? I mean, because that's that's true. And there is a sense in which perfect love does cast out fear. Um, that's a scriptural truth as well. Yeah. So, so how would you respond in that situation? Yeah, well, um, instead of picking our favorite, I think we have to ask how those two things live together. And um, the fear, of course, it's being referenced in Psalm 111.10. And then when we speak specifically of the fear of the Lord, we mean the right reverence of the Lord. Um, and I want to say, oh, it's not a trembling fear because perfect love casts out the fear of rejection. But I don't actually think that that's what we see in, uh, in the scriptures, I mean, if you look at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, um, right after it says, you haven't come to scary Mount Sinai, you've come to joyful Mount Zion, um, then it ends with worship the Lord in the, in the, in the fear of holiness, um, for our God is a consuming fire. Like he's still a consuming fire at the end of Hebrews 12. And so we have to, we have to make sure that we are 
living the Christian life in a place that acknowledges that the one who is near is also the one who transcends, and he is worthy of our worship. He is not he is not level with us. He is not on the same level with us. And, um, and, and that changes the way that we pray. It changes the way that we think and speak and act because we understand that the consuming fire that was coming for us apart from Christ uh, is no longer. And, and, but that is still the God who, who we worship. Mm. Do you think there's a sense in which there's a bit of a pendulum swing effect going on where maybe in previous generations, God was viewed as distant and hard and cold, and maybe he was just kind of always angry at us. Uh, and so there was this, this kind of a distance, a lack of warmth. And now we maybe swung in the other direction where he's very close, very near. He just loves us. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and, I, and you know, it's interesting because I think it trickles down into the way that um, earthly fathers think about fatherhood. I think about the the my grandfather and my great grandfather and what their parenting style was compared to my own fathers and my husbands um, because you see among parents now and even you know younger parents now high high relational value on parenting in fact to the to the place that in many cases rules have fallen by the wayside rules are seen as um tearing down relationship instead of enabling relationship, yeah. which is really what rules are for. Tell me, I, I've seen that. I have young kids at home, and there are, there seems to be a strain of parenting philosophies that are, are very much like that. Like, don't say no to your kids, because that's going to... Jeopardize relationships. Yeah, stifle mm-hmm. their creativity, stifle their own ex- self-expression. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um, it's interesting how those kinds of... Uh, this worldly types of relationships can even maybe Color. feed back into how we view God. Yeah, absolutely. What was your What was your dad like, and how do you think that might have influenced the way that you approach God? It's had a massive influence on the way I think about the Lord, and I think it's one of the reasons that <clears throat> I don't deal with the self-loathing piece as much as I deal with the pride piece. Um, my dad was a really great mix of relationship and rules. I think he understood how those two things worked together really well. And I think he fell into that generational sweet spot between the aloof parent and the overly relational parent. And um, he always treated me as though I had a mind that was worth developing. He always treated me as though my opinions mattered. I have four brothers and I was, you know, treated like one of the pack. I was not treated, um, you know, obviously there are differences in the ways that we treat daughters and sons, but in terms of my ability to think and to reason and uh, my sense of humor, all of those things, he, he, he treated me as someone that he saw and valued and wanted to be around and enjoyed being around. And, it, and um, it's impacted, you know, my marriage, uh, the kind of man that I married, and uh, certainly made the idea of God as father something that was appealing to me. And I know that for many women that's not the case because they have very difficult stories with their earthly fathers. So it was a huge gift, huge gift. And I say this is my parents divorced when I was eight. So there were a thousand ways that this man could have not gotten this right. Mm. And he persevered. What do you say to women who don't have fathers, who are like your dad, who, who didn't model... Mm. Um, that authority and love uh, in a in a godly way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the the thing with our earthly families is we so very much want them to be the families that we know they should be, and they just aren't. And um, so whether it's a father who failed you or a mother who failed you or, you know, could be any range of family members, um, this is why it's so important for us to hear the words of Jesus in the New Testament when he says that his, gosh, Matt, you're making me cry on the podcast, uh, when he says, who are my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters? It's the one who does the will of the father. And he points us to the true and better family, which is the church. And so um, I think that obviously God is the ultimate father, but within the family of God, the church, we often find ourselves placed mercifully in proximity to those who are spiritual mothers and fathers and spiritual siblings to us in a way that our natural families weren't or couldn't be. And it's a it's a massive gift. I think it's a, it's a sign of the inbreaking kingdom. Mm. And that's this whole conversation is just another uh, example of of I think what you're hitting on in the book, just pointing us away from ourselves ultimately. Mm-hmm. Even if God gives us uh, other Christians who can be those mothers and fathers to us, um, we're all imperfect. And if we look inward, if we're, if we're turning towards ourselves rather than to something transcendent, like you've said, um, we're ultimately going to be disappointed. Uh, and one of, the, one of the attributes of God that you focus on, I, I believe you start with it, is God's infinity. Mm-hmm. And as another way of uh, saying God doesn't have limits, mm-hmm. why do you think that's an important uh, attribute or quality of God that we should start with when we think about who he is? Well, it, if you want to talk about the otherness of God, that's pretty much the, 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 the starting point because everything that we know starts and ends somewhere. Everyone that we know starts and ends somewhere. Um, everything about us is an expression of a limit. And, um, and so to, to then see God as free of limits begins to orient us rightly to him to understand that he is worthy of worship. Because the very most basic answer to the question, who am I for every human being is, I am a worshiper. And so when we uh, try to understand, which is, you know, beyond uh, our understanding, but we're able to understand in part, that God is not bound by time, and he's not bound by a physical body, and he is not bound by space, and he is not bound in his knowledge or in his wisdom or in his rule, all of the ways that God is not bound and that we are bound, then we have to uh, dig a little deeper and say, well, why am I limited and God is not limited? Is it because of sin? Because that's what I think we, we kind of think in our head is, well, that must be Genesis 3. Right. Like Genesis 1 and 2, where everything was going to be awesome. I was probably going to be unlimited. Yeah. And then you start looking at it, and you're like, no, actually, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but not as God. And so they were created with physical bodies, which were limits. They could only be in one place at one time. Um, The idea of rest is in the creation account. So they needed to rest. Their strength was not inexhaustible. There was food given to them. So they needed to eat to sustain their energy. Um, They needed to um, reproduce themselves. There are all of these things that you begin to see, oh, wait a minute. The reason that limits exist for humanity is because God designed us to be limited. So then we can begin to ask, what lessons might we learn if we reflect on that God is limitless and I am actually limited by design? Yeah. Maybe those limits were given to me 
so that I would turn to the Lord in them. It's so hard for us to even think about those limits, though. You, you listed some of them, I think, in part because they're all uh, stained with sin in our lives today. Right. It's hard for me to think about um, my need for sleep even without just thinking about the ways that, that we that we rebel against God, that we... we Sin just colors everything about our existence today, so I, I sometimes think it's hard to contemplate those things. I think perfect humanity is something that we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. Like, perfect humanity means perfect submission to perfect limits. Um, but what we're dealing with is imperfect humanity <laughs> with imperfect submission to limits that we can't even really trace anymore, like we've forgotten where they are. And so even something as simple as sleep, well, the reason that I want to stay up until 2 a.m., you know, doing work or staring at my phone instead of going to bed is probably a sinful one. Uh, but I've forgotten that it's a good boundary to go to bed, that that was actually a boundary line that falls in a pleasant place for me if I would seek it out. Um, and, and so instead, I think that the boundary is the problem, which is pretty typical human nature. <laughs> uh, you know what the problem is? It's where you drew the line. It's yeah. not with my behavior. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's interesting. That picks up, too, on one of the main threads in how you think about these attributes of God, uh, specifically ones that we don't share with him, right. some of the ones that you just listed, is our problem get, comes when we try to assume those attributes ourselves mm -hmm. and don't recognize the inherent limits that God has placed on us as good. Can you elaborate on that, why that, that is kind of the, that's the crux of the issue? Yeah, that was the turning point for me in this discussion. When I first discovered what, the incommunicable attributes, the ones that are only true about God, I thought, why have I never how come no one's talking about this? This feels really important, but I wasn't really sure why it was important. And then the more time that I spent with them, the more I began to realize we talk a lot about the idolatry of like loving someone in the place of God or um, uh, trying to um, uh, imitate someone else who instead of God. But the problem with the incommunicable attributes is that we actually are trying to imitate God in a way that we are not designed to imitate Him. And, and so I, at first I would have said, well, I, I can't be omniscient, so I'm just going to worship God for being omniscient. But then I began to realize, no, I have a bigger problem. It's not just that I can't be omniscient. It's that I actually really want to be omniscient, and I'm finding ways to make myself feel as though I am omniscient on a regular basis. And so, you know, the obvious example here is the smartphone. Um, man, you hold that in your hand. I mean, there was even an ad campaign, I remember, for one of those phones when it first came out that said, all seeing, all knowing. <laughs> With, for the phone, I'm like, okay, A, that's a creepy ad campaign, but yeah. B, Who, do you hear the appeal? Yeah, I mean, do you hear the appeal? Who doesn't want that? I don't want limits. I want to think that there are no limits on my, uh, on what I can know. Um, I do want to think there are no limits on, on my location. So um, FaceTime, well, that really appeals to me because that means I can live in one place and I can spend time, you know, feel like I'm maintaining relationship or, you know, maybe the classic one would be um, social media in general, which gives you the sense that you can maintain basically an infinite number of relationships with people um, without being in an infinite number of locations. Mm. And so you get this false sense of, oh, I know all of these people. Well, only God is not bound by location in a way that mean, that makes possible for him the ability to maintain relationship with as many people as he wishes. Uh, and so social media mimics 
uh, omnipresence by making me feel like I can have proximity to all of these people when I actually don't. Mm. As you think about uh, the list of God's incommunicable attributes, I believe you focus on 10 of them in the book. Uh, Is there one that you feel most tempted towards to try to take for yourself? Uh, Yes. I, the one that I think is the most convicting to me, well, uh, okay, I'll give you two. Um, sovereign, because I, I, I want to control people, you know, like I do. I want to control people. I think that's a pretty common one. But at the point that I was writing the book, my kids were entering into the years of parenting where you have to pull back on the controls and you become a consultant. And I was not loving that. And I, uh, I mean, I knew I needed to do it. And I was operating according to the schedule. But in my heart, I did not want to let go. Um, you know, that find my friends thing where I can, I could track my kids. I could know where they are all the time if I want to. Uh, and that makes me feel omniscient, omnipresent in a way that I did not want to turn loose of. And arguably there were good reasons not to, uh, at various points. Um, so I would say that one sovereignty, uh, and I, I guess I rolled omniscience and omnipresence in there as well. But I think the biggest one for me overall, uh, across my lifetime has been, immutability. I hate change. And um, I've, I've jokingly said that it's because I'm, uh, you know, like God, because God <laughs> does not change. But there's nothing more ubiquitous to the human condition than change. And so the fact that I hate it shows something about something going on in me. And again, it has probably to do with that control issue. And so not only do Am I prone to not wanting anything in my circumstances to change or in my relationships to change, but also in my heart? Uh, I, 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 when I write in the book about people who, when confronted with their sin, say, well, that's just who I am. I can't change. You know, how do you think I come up with a good example like that? Oh, that's right, because it's me looking <laughs> in the mirror, you know? Uh, the, just that impulse to say, listen, this is who I am, and you just need to take me on, on my own terms. Uh, if it's a sin problem, then it's not who I was intended to be. And if the spirit dwells in me, then it's not who I might become. And so uh, to, to aspire to immutability or to try to embrace immutability as a human being is to deny the power of the gospel to change us from, from glory to glory. Uh, so you save the chapter on God's sovereignty till the end of the book, and you, you make a point of highlighting that. Why did you do that? Well, it's, a, it's, it's controversial. I don't think it's controversial in the sense that you can't see it in the scriptures, but it's controversial in the way that we try to understand it, because most people want to land on, you know, they, they don't give you a place to land between determination and free will. So either we're puppets or we can do every single thing that we want. And so I wanted people to have enough of a framework for the limitlessness of God in other um, aspects before I introduced that concept, because I think we often just talk about it on its own. And when you start thinking about the sovereignty of God after you've contemplated that he is limitless in his power and his knowledge and his location and on and on and on, by the time you get to sovereignty, you're like, Oh, well, yeah. Kind of another way of saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, oh, well, that kind of ties it all together. I Mm. mean, how would he not be sovereign if he is all of these other things? Um, And then I, you know, I've hung around with Calvinists for a long time. 
I am one. But uh, I do think that sometimes, uh, again, we have an emphasis problem here that can be not very pastoral, certainly, but also just um, just not sensitive to the typical learner um, or someone who's just honestly trying to read the Bible and reconcile these ideas of free will and, and God's sovereignty. And so um, I always like to remind people who read my books that the Bible is very, very clear that God is sovereign and man is responsible. And how those two things work together, I don't know. Uh, but I need to find the way to let those two things be speaking to me out of the scriptures. I think it's a very similar um, uh, situation to wanting to live with the fear of the Lord and also the, um, the deep and personal affection of the Lord as my two reference points. And that if I lean one way too much or, or the other way too much, then something's probably going to get out of kilter with my theology. So um, just wanting to restore to people a sense of you can trust the sovereignty of God and also still recognize that your decisions matter. Uh, was there a process of you coming to embrace the sovereignty of God as you do today? Did you always think this way? Or was there a time when, when what you just said would have been problematic for you? Uh, no, I came out of a, a, a free will background, like many people did, and I, I had my cage stage too, probably <laughs> when I was in my late twenties. Uh, you know, just feeling like this was out here the whole time, and nobody told me this. Uh, and I remember trying to teach on the sovereignty of God in a church where everybody's like, "Why are we, why are we what what's happening? Why are we talking about this?" <laughs> and uh, I had tried to I wrote a study on hymns of the church, and I was I didn't really want to teach about hymns. I mean, I did a little bit. But I mainly just wanted to wedge my favorite hobby horses, my doctrines that I was, you know, really um, wanting to indoctrinate people into, into this little hymn study. So I'm like, hey, let's come learn about the hymns. Oh, and by the way, let's talk about free will, you know, or let's talk about the five points of Calvinism. And it didn't go well. Uh, as you, <laughs> how, how so? What happened? Well, uh, you know, you can't just do a hard right turn for a bunch of people who've grown up in uh, singing Just As I Am to an invitation every week and, um, you know if you died tonight, where are you going to spend eternity and all that kind of stuff. And these are, these are believers who love the Lord. And, uh, I think at that point I didn't, I loved doctrine, but I didn't love the people who I was teaching doctrine to. And, um, that changes the way that you present any message and, um, hope changes it for the better. It doesn't mean that you compromise the message, but it certainly means that you look for how the message is going to be helpful to them in practical ways, kind yeah. of what you're describing. How how would you how would you change how you present something like God's sovereignty, which is it is a hard thing if you're not, if you haven't thought carefully about it, or even if you have, it, it's just they are truths that that maybe strike at the heart of who we sometimes think we are and who we think God is. How would you present that to somebody who is struggling? Well, I think we should understand it as a comfort. Certainly, uh, but it's a it's an ultimate comfort. I think that the way that God's sovereignty is often presented to people, I, I certainly don't think it's a great topic to bring up when someone is in crisis, um, unless they want to talk about it. But um, 
we want neat plot resolutions to our stories and we're accustomed to it and the entertainment industry is happy to give them to us and novels are happy to give them to us. We are shocked when we learn that the sovereignty of God is something that actually stretches from Alpha to Omega. It stretches from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Uh, When we think about God being sovereign, we want our story to make sense in our 70 or 80 years. And so the idea that the sovereignty of God is bigger than my lifetime is jarring to me. Um, And I think also the idea that the sum total of the decisions that I will make during my lifetime may have a big impact, but probably will be a drop in the bucket in Mm. terms of the direction of humanity over uh, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Mm. doesn't mean that those decisions don't matter. They matter very much. They just matter in reference to the sovereignty of God. And so I, I, I hope to teach those things with, uh, with care, without sound bites attached to them, which I think can be a real problem of, oh, the Lord's going to work it all out. You know, well, he may not until three generations from now in my family, some of the things that we're dealing with. Am I okay with that? No, I, I want to see that now, you know, but the God who is not limited by time, he sees the beginning from the end. So there's a lot of comfort in that, but there's also um, some pressing on us to say, what am I willing to turn loose of that I have loved? What idea that I have loved that, um, that the Lord using all things for good is going to happen in a time frame that I'm going to get to witness, mm. um, that maybe it's better if that's not the case. Mm. Maybe not better for me in this life, but that I will stand um, with the saints one day and look back and say, yeah, that was better. Well, Jen, thank you so much for uh, sharing a little bit more about your passion to know God. And thank you for your work helping uh, regular people to, to, to do that, to get to know him better. Thanks for having me on. That was Jen Wilkin on Embracing Our God-Given Limits. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, None Like Him, 10 Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.